This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 9th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now I know some of you Maybe came this morning and thought, I'm going to hear a Christmas sermon. And then you hear that text. Every sermon's a Christmas sermon because it's all about Jesus. So we'll have a Christmassy thing on the 23rd, but today we're going verse by verse, and this is where the Lord has us today, so we're going to stick with it. If you bow with me, I'm going to pray to our God and King. Heavenly Father, King Jesus, indwelling Spirit, we praise You, God, three in one. You are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are completely other than us, separated from us. And though we are made in Your image, we are not like You in every way. You are pure, You are perfect in every way possible. Who is like You, O God? There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides You, Lord. There is no rock like our God. We confess that we are not holy in ourselves. That we are an unholy people, a sinful people, a broken people, a weak people. That we have fallen short of Your glory, so short that even our good works, Lord, are displeasing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing good. Apart from Your grace, we will do everything bad. We acknowledge our failure. We admit our hearts are prone to wander. And we declare that You are worthy and undeserving of our rebellion and that we desperately need You. But we gather as a people to rejoice in the hope and the salvation 
that is found in our Savior Jesus Christ. That Jesus, You died and You did so while we were sinners, unholy and rebellious. That You demonstrated Your tremendous love for us before we were clean. That You lived the life that we should have and You died the death that we deserved and You exchanged our unrighteousness for Your righteousness. We exist, therefore, as a people, Lord, who are grateful and gratefully dependent on Your work for us. Thank You for fixing what we broke in our relationship. Thank You for sustaining that relationship. Thank You for never giving up on that relationship and for committing to completing the work that You began in us. As Your people, it's our desire to make much of Your name with our lives individually and collectively as Your people in this place. We desire for Jesus, Your name and Your fame to be greater in this place because we are here. We thank You for stirring in the hearts of Your people to help us purchase this place. That we might dig roots deeply here and establish the church for many generations to come Empower us, God, to steward this place well that we might minister to this city and bring further restoration to more and more people. Help us to be the ambassadors that You have called us to be. We pray for the ministry of Road Salt that it, Father, will, through it, help us partner with other brothers and sisters across the nation and the globe. Lift our eyes beyond what we can just see in this city and right in front of us and make us aware that You are working elsewhere through Your people in different places of the globe, that more people are being saved, that more churches are being planted, that more embassies are being established for the name of Jesus, and we pray You will continue to send more missionaries further and further until all have heard the Gospel. And finally this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray You'll move me out of the way and speak the words You need to speak by Your Word. Implant Your Word deeply in our hearts. Convict us where we need conviction. Comfort us where we need comfort. But clear our minds of distractions and make our hearts soft to receive Your words and be changed by them. Pray You'll make it our desire to please You by finding our pleasure in You and Your ways. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we have spent the last six weeks working through this first letter to a new church plant in the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. We'll work through the whole letter and then work through the second letter and by the end of January-ish, move on. When Paul first planted this church, he spent three weeks in the synagogues proclaiming Jesus to the Jews as the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And several believed, but even more, rioted. And they chased Paul and his team out of town. And they even chased him into the next town. The apostle loved this church though, and loves this church. And so he sent his right-hand man, Timothy, back into affliction, into difficulty, to report on the faith of this new church plant ministering in a city that was incredibly hostile towards Jesus. And having returned with good news 
about how the affliction that they're experiencing has actually increased their love for God and increased their love for one another. Paul is writing this letter. It's a letter of thankfulness. It's a letter to encourage them as he has been encouraged by their faith to walk in the newness of life that they have now in Christ. And so we titled our study The Normal Christian Life because in this letter, Paul both affirms and teaches the Thessalonians about what to expect as they pursue this kind of normal Christian experience. What is life supposed to be like? And so far, he has described the normal Christian life in several ways. He first said it's quite abnormal in the world. He said that it's a resounding life, that as that faith comes alive, it it sounds out and the name of Jesus goes further. It's gone all through Greece as they've heard about the faith of this people in this very difficult place. It's a shepherding life where Paul describes himself as a mom and a dad and, and as brothers, people shepherding one another and caring for one another's spiritual lives. He said it's a word center life. We talked about the idea of being a people of the book. Not just a book, the very words of God. And Paul has sobered us to say it's actually an afflicted life. It's a life that's difficult. Life full of persecution, a life full of suffering, but it's not suffering alone because it's a shared life. And together, God's people burden some of those difficulties and their love for one another even grows. And now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is going to teach that the normal Christian life is a pure life. A life of purity. Now, Timothy had brought good news concerning their Christian faith, but it seems like, by virtue of what Paul writes here, he also brought another report about the church. A report about their Christian behavior. So in chapter 4, Paul gets a little more practical. gets a little more specific. He is still theological, but it's theology worked out in real life. And he begins to talk about specifically sexuality and work and death. Those are three big things. I would argue three of the biggest things that we have to face as humans and as Christians. These represent the Apostles' first instructions to a brand new church plant with brand new Christians in it. And he's describing right Christian living in response to the Gospel. Now, there was a 20th century commentator. It might have been John Stott. I can't remember where I read it. But he observed that the evangelical church was in danger of becoming a people who preach the gospel but fail to live the gospel or adorn the gospel with their lives. I wonder if the same could be said today. I think one of the greatest strengths of today's evangelical church is the renewed emphasis on the centrality of the gospel of grace. That's a good thing. 
We hear it often, gospel-centered this and, and gospel-centered that, and we talk about the grace of the gospel, the richness of God's grace, the fact that we are doing nothing, bringing nothing to the table but our sin, that we are not earning our salvation, we don't deserve a salvation, that all is of grace. That's important. That's good. But one of the greatest weaknesses of today's evangelical church perhaps is the neglect of an ethic in response to that grace. Of a way of living, knowing that we stand in the grace of Christ. I was reminded what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, which is a quote you may have heard. It's used often. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian during World War II from Germany. He had the courage to speak out against Adolf Hitler. He was thrown into one of the um, internment camps and eventually died there. He wrote several books, Cost of Discipleship, Life Together. And he said this, that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. That cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I found that without question, there is a difference between calling people to find life in Christ and commanding people to live like Christ. One seems to be maybe easier than the other. One seems to be more easily received than the other. Find your life in Christ. Receive His gracious forgiveness and love. And we go, yes, that's awesome. Now live like Him. People push back. Whoa, you, you tell me how I'm supposed to live? In, I'm supposed to act? How I'm supposed to behave? I'm telling you how you should respond. There is no cost to finding life in Christ. That's a gift but there is without question a cost to living like Him. The normal call of a Christian is to live an abnormal life in the world. Not to choose suffering. Not to find the most uncomfortable ways to live as a Christian, but to say like, to live as a normal Christian is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be different. Because the lives of those who do not know God, that do not fear God, do not thank God, should contrast with the lives of those who do. Because those who do not know God have nothing else to live for than to please themselves. And those who do know God are called to live lives that please Him. Now, Declaring that one can please God, please God with our lives, please God with our words, please God with our behavior, seems to imply that we can displease God. And without much explanation, I realize that that can feel in conflict with the gospel of grace. And that's the tension. Well, are you talking about work now? You're talking about what I have to do to make sure God accepts me? 
Let's look at these first two verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Consider what Paul says. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Please God more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So I want to be clear about the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what He has done to restore our relationship with God. I think if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you should be clear on this. My hope is if you've been with our church for any amount of time, you are clear on this. Because I pray that if nothing else, we have preached the Gospel clearly and courageously. But the Gospel teaches us that salvation is an act of God towards sinners. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is not deserved. But it is offered by grace and received through faith. The Son of God lived a life that we were supposed to live. And then He died the death that we were supposed to die because we couldn't live that life and we sinned. And He did so in our place. And by trusting what Jesus Christ alone has done on the cross for our salvation, and not in anything we might achieve, not in in anything we might earn by our good works, or not earn by our bad. God, through faith, in what Jesus Christ has done for us, trusting in His righteousness, not our own, He makes us holy. He makes us blameless without stain or blemish. We are in Christ, through faith, forgiven. We are made righteous as He exchanged His righteousness for our unrighteousness. We are reconciled to God and we are brought into relationship with Him free of guilt, cleansed of shame, adopted as heirs in His family to live with Him eternally. By grace, through faith, we are in Christ. Meaning, that when God sees us, He is perfectly pleased because He sees the perfection of His Son. That's the Gospel. And I pray we stand on that and savor that, and grow in that, and never stop being excited about that. But if God is so perfectly pleased, how is it that we can be more pleasing? It's a fair question. Well, our union with Christ, which is a way of talking about our relationship with Christ, our permanent relationship with Christ, enables us to bring God pleasure with our lives. Delight. Non-believers cannot please God. That's what the Bible plainly says. In Romans 8.8, it says, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Or again, in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. 
Our union with Christ cannot change. It is permanent. He loves us. He has adopted us into His family irrevocably. He's not waiting to kick us out for us to do something wrong enough for Him not to love us anymore. And if you're a parent, you understand this. Right? Our kids, we love them. We love them unconditionally. They are part of our family. And yet, there are times when we delight in our children more than others. And there are times when we are grieved by our children. But my hope is, and I believe it is true, our love for them doesn't change. We may be grieved. We may be sad. We may even be angry. But we still love them. And pursue them. And hope for them. We are in union with Christ. And that doesn't change. God's disposition towards us doesn't change change in that sense where he's like you're out but we should understand that our relationship our communion with christ can grow our communion with him can increase in its pleasure and he can delight in us this is why paul can urge believers those who are born of the spirit those who have faith to walk in a particular way in order to please god that's why he can say in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul proceeds to call the Thessalonians to previous teaching about how to live as a Christian. How to respond to this Gospel of grace. For the genuine Christian, failure to please God through how we live is no longer about breaking God's rules and being condemned. It's about breaking God's heart and being estranged. And we don't want that. Because the Christian genuinely knows God loves them. And the Christian loves God. God as Heavenly Father loves us unconditionally, but He is grieved when we disobey. And He is delighted. It's interesting to consider delighting. God delighting in us. But He's delighted when we find our delight in obedience to His ways. Pleasing God is or should be the heart disposition of all genuine believers. And as Christians, we don't live in fear of losing God's love because of our sinful mistakes. That's grace. But no Christian can live indifferent towards God's will or indifferent towards God's grief. So what Paul begins to do is get very specific about what it means to please God in terms of Christian living. And it's interesting, he is laying it on pretty heavy. What I mean is that 
He's not just giving personal advice or wisdom of what he thinks we should do. And that's interesting. Whenever we talk about those kinds of things with others, you know what? Um, Christ is gracious. Christ is forgiving. Christ is loving. Christ is, you know, yes, that's great. And then we say, and Christ expects you to live like this. But whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you to tell me what way I should live or that I should stop? Paul says that he is giving instructions through the Lord Jesus. It's very strong language. The word for instruction is actually used for military commands like marching orders. And these orders aren't from General Paul. They're from King Jesus. Paul writes in verse 3, He says this. Here are his marching orders. The commands coming from Jesus. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And there's a colon. We'll get to that. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. That's bold. Now apart from the commands of God, be it the Ten Commandments or other imperative type of statements, there are few verses in Scripture where God's desires are explicitly stated this way. I wonder what the will of God is. We often talk about searching for the will of God in relation to to more practical matters, more pragmatic things. What job should I take? What kind of person should I marry? Should I make this decision or not? Like, oh, what's the will of God here? What's the will of God here? Well, this is kind of going larger. Like Those things, in many ways, I believe God allows freedom. You can choose by God's grace where to work and what to do with your lives. And many of the decisions, most of the decisions you make are freely given to us. The Bible certainly gives us principles about how we are to make decisions, but it doesn't tell us specifically the will of God is this for you. And so I'm always careful to say this must be the will of God. We don't have to be careful here. This is the will of God, it says. God's will for us is our sanctification. That is something God is doing to us, in us, and wants for us to embrace. Now, the plain meaning of a big word like sanctification is this idea of being in a state of proper functioning or design. To sanctify something is to, in many ways, set that thing apart for its intended use by its designer, by its creator. So you think about sin and how that's affected humanity, how that's affected us. We are broken. We are deformed. We are weak. All the parts are there, but our arm is weak like being out of a socket, right? It it doesn't work properly. Things are deformed. 
And so, sanctification is this process that begins at redemption and ends at our final restoration. And it's the process of being restored to how God designed us to be. Who God made us to be. And it begins, as I said, at redemption. We're placed in Christ and we're indwelled with the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we begin to be changed and conformed to the image of Christ, only to be fully experiencing that with God face-to-face in the end. So we're in this in-between time. At the moment of conversion, we are positionally set in Christ. We're spiritually, if you will, made perfect before God. Pleasing before God. And yet, over a lifetime, this sanctification process is the process of becoming in practice, in our hands, in our feet, in our tongues, in our behavior, what we already are in position. So we already are perfect in Christ, but we know we're not perfect in our flesh. And so, what God began inside of us affects the outside of us. What He does with this new heart He's given us begins to affect our bodies and our tongues and all aspects of our lives. And that's a lifelong process. I love that it's called Restoration Road because it's a heck of a long road for us. But it is in a direction. A direction towards restoration. So what happens inside of us by grace does affect the outside of us. But I think it works both ways. And this is why Paul makes this point that what we do on the outside also affects the inside of us. It makes sense that the first issue Paul addresses in Thessalonica is sexual purity. You think about all the things Paul could have brought up. All the different behaviors that that he could have addressed. And he begins with sexual purity. Why is that? Well, author and teacher Dan Allender has his opinion as to why that is. He wrote this, the most crucial theological truth about sexuality is that God loves sex and evil hates it. That God made us sexual and He glories in His plan for our union and joy. Evil hates what God loves. And it is found that the more harm can be done through sex than perhaps any other means. Often the chief battleground for the human soul is in the terrain of sexuality. I think more than anything else in our world today and in the church today, we are being assaulted through a broken sexuality. I was talking to some older gentleman in the previous service and we're talking about the generation that he represented and the types of battles that he had to fight that are just different than ones we have to fight for ourselves and for our kids. There's a reason why we have ministries and individuals and groups dedicated to fighting for sexual purity in individuals and in marriages. Because it is the greatest battleground right now, I believe, in humanity and in the life of the church. Sex affects our souls. And it does so with a power unlike many other things. 
And many of us here know that firsthand. We know the brokenness and the pain that that brings. And if you don't know it personally, I assure you, you know someone who does. And this is why it's God's will to restore us in this way. It's His desire to sanctify us sexually. And that begins with abstaining from sexual morality that is so pervasive everywhere. It's hard not to be exposed to it. Now the word translated sexual immorality here is kind of this large umbrella term that many things in terms of activity fall under, whether it be promiscuity, adultery, prostitution, pornography. In the days of the Thessalonians, the Greco-Roman culture had extremely distorted views of marriage and sexuality and family. One Greek writer noted that, quote, we have Cortesians for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily co- cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and a faithful guardian for our household. Pretty messed up. But I think it doesn't take much of an evaluation of our own culture to see that we might be in competition for the most perverse world there is. Rome was bad. We may have surpassed them. Today, sexuality is idolized like no other time. It is monetized like no other time. And we have come to the point where we are now institutionalizing it like never before. It is not just encouraged and applauded, it is actually required. Modern culture has tried to redefine sexual expression as a personal right to be exercised in any way the individual wishes, making it very self-centered. There is really no such thing in our world today as sin And there is really no wrong in any kind of sexual expression. It's just different. What were once the vilest acts are now celebrated and what may have been whispered in the shadows is now taught in schools. That's our culture. And more than that, Sexuality has become more than just a behavior. It is now a full-fledged identity. It's an identity complete with its own preachers, its own communities, its own confessions, its own catechisms. So, it makes sense that Paul addresses it. It doesn't make sense that we're still dealing with the exact same issue. There's nothing new under the sun. So Paul instructs these young Christians, these new Christians, as some of the most important things to please God by abstaining from all forms of perversion sexually and calls them to self-control. And by self-control, he is saying, do not conform to the world, but keep this thing, this gift of God, this sexuality in the context of God. In God's context, which we would understand that as biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And it's interesting that I have to say it that way. And I won't be surprised if one day I won't be able to say that without threat 
of imprisonment. But Paul had given this recommendation, this say, kind of a self-control toward marriage in his letter to the Corinthians. So he's writing his letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth, and you'll see he writes a letter to Corinth later about the same stuff. Because it's everywhere. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote this in speaking about married relationships and unmarried people. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 6 says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am. He's single. I wish you all stay single. I'm not saying it's command of the Lord. I think it's better. He says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So, he does say marriage is a helpful tool to encourage self-control and to flee from sexual immorality. But marriage is not, not merely a means to avoid unholiness and the pain that comes from sin. I would argue it's actually a step toward holiness and even joy. I think that's one of the weaknesses of the Christian sexual ethic today. We've gotten really good at telling people what is wrong, and we have not done a good job of celebrating what is right about this gift in marriage. Maybe we will change that in the next years. But most people today, if you think about it, would argue that my sexuality is none of your business, and it's certainly none of God's. You stay out of my bedroom and I'll stay out of yours. In many ways, there probably couldn't be a more personal and private matter. But the interesting thing about this letter is that it's a letter that's read publicly. At the end of the letter, you see Paul saying, make sure you read this to every brother and sister. Paul's getting in their business. And I wonder how they received that admonishment. This is where Paul begins his instructions on how we ought to walk as Christians in response to the Gospel of grace. Purity in sexuality is supposed to be a distinguishing mark of the Christian. I would say sexual immorality may be a distinguishing mark of our culture today. And the Christian, unlike the world that is governed by their passions and lusts, because they do not know God, those who do know God are to be governed by what pleases God, namely, holiness that is found in obedience to His commands. Now the world, even our own flesh at times, want to believe that God is just some cosmic killjoy wanting to make our lives less than or miserable. That God is in some way uh, holding out on us. He couldn't possibly 
be wanting to restore us to how He made us to be. He's holding out on us. He knows something. Isn't that the lie of the serpent? And so it's been said, even by me, and I would say that this was wrong to say, so I'm going to correct what I said. I think there's been a time or two where I've probably stood up here and said that God is not interested in our happiness, but our holiness. But I've come to believe that it's probably better said that God is committed to our happiness through our holiness. He is committed to our happiness. We just don't believe Him. We don't believe that He is a loving God who wants to give us His best. And His best is how He made us to be. But I do believe that happiness does come through our holiness. Now this is a warning Paul is giving them. and He's not just giving it to un, the unmarried believer. He's actually speaking to the unmarried and to married believers. This may not surprise you, but I sit down with lots of couples, do counseling for marriages. I would argue that three quarters of them, at least 75% of them, whatever communication issues they think they have, whatever struggles they might be going through, 75% of it is rooted to sexual morality. Maybe that surprises you, maybe it doesn't. But that is a root cause either in their past or their present. Without question, promiscuity, and pornography, and perversion, all of it is assaulting our marriages and those who are not married. But in marriage, the Bible talks about this union as a, a unifying of the souls, a becoming of one flesh, this powerful, mysterious thing that is even reflective of the relationship of God Himself. And who would you think that disturbing that would not hurt deeply? That union is a restorative and life-giving union within a biblical context, but it is also equally destructive and life-draining outside of one. Biblically, sexual expression is holy. It's a sacred act of self-sacrifice, of intimacy, of covenant renewal and trust. And when sin comes in, it makes it very unholy because it makes it very self-centered. It makes it a merely physical act where people are viewed as objects and I'm going to get mine. It twists it completely upside down. And that can still happen even within marriage, right? The institution of marriage between a man and a woman helps fight this kind of aversion, but it doesn't fix it. I've counseled many young couples in pre-married and they've had their struggles and they've confessed and they're working hard and they believe, if we just get married, things will all be fixed. And that's not true. This is why the writer of Hebrews reminds us to let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous even within marriage. The marriage bed is defiled when a husband or wife approaches sexuality for their own pleasure versus the desire to please God. 
And Paul speaks of the judgment of God. Which again, we go, that sounds kind of heavy-handed, Paul. Right? But he speaks about the judgment of God that He brings upon this kind of sin. He doesn't speak this way about other sins. He instructs the unmarried and the married. The unmarried and the married believer not to sin against someone this way because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He didn't say, hey, by the way, don't do that. It's kind of bad. He's like, don't tick off God. You go, whoa, that's... He's an avenger. He brings judgment and vengeance. I mean, it almost sounds like Paul is saying that. You better please God or else. I mean, does Paul really believe that that's the most effective way to inspire the church? To scare them into obedience? I mean, what happened to... Are we preaching fear now, Paul? Are we preaching works now, Paul? What happened to grace? Now, it's important to remember that Paul um, front-loaded this letter with affection. So if you ever read the letter to the Corinthians, um, that's a messed up church. And messed up in all kinds of ways, especially sexually. And the first few chapters are like, oh man, you guys are awesome. The Spirit has so filled you. You have all the gifts. You have all these amazing blessings. And then two-thirds of the letter are like, you guys need some fixing. But he front-loaded, like Mary Poppins, right? A little bit of sugar with the medicine, right? And that's what Paul did in Thessalonians, right? He, he, he says, I love you guys. Your faith is so encouraging to me. I pray about you constantly. You bring me so much joy. You even bring me hope in my own affliction. I'm like a mom to you that cares for you, a dad that loves you. And so we can't just go like, oh, Paul's just being mean. No, he loves these people. And it is wrong for any shepherd not to speak the hard words to the sheep, to those he loves. And so over and over again, he thanked them and loved them. But he's not trying to make God out to be some scary judge. He actually is trying to reveal God as a loving Father who is jealous for His children's lives. Now the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about God's grace and we should talk about it and preach it and teach it and dwell on it and meditate on it. The Bible says, that by grace we are justified, made right and innocent before God. By grace we are built up in love. By grace we employ our gifts to edify one another and glorify God. By grace we are strengthened when we are weak. By grace we are saved. That everything we do, every bit of resting, every bit of working, every bit of believing is by grace. That nothing is earned because of some merit that nothing is deserved because of our guilt. But all is God and all is grace. But Peter, at the end of his second epistle, says that we can grow in grace. And if we can grow in grace or 
If we can please God and increase in pleasing God, perhaps a word of warning or exhortation about striving to please God is actually a means of grace. He says in these last two verses, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, whoever ignores this, whoever dismisses this, is not just dismissing some guy, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That kind of warning is a grace. It's a grace to warn about sin. It's a grace to say, that leads to death. Stop. It's a grace to say, that that leads to God's judgment. Stop. It's a grace to say, that is going to take you away from the Lord and from hope and from joy. Stop. It's a grace first for God to warn us. Like the fact that we have Scripture, that how we ought live and respond to grace isn't a mystery. Like, whoa, what's the will of God for Your sanctification! Your holiness! That you would find joy and pleasure and delight and hope in His commands. Like it's not a mystery. Oh, what are His commands? He tells us! That's a grace that He tells us. He didn't just save us and go, figure it out. Good luck. He's a personal God. He's a communicate God. He, he speaks to us. And so, it's a grace for God to warn us and it's a grace for us to warn each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, it is a grace for us to confront one another in love. But, it has to be in love. It is not gracious for you to admonish somebody and go, <laughs> let me tell you what God thinks. If you don't have the kind of affection that Paul has for Thessalonians or the Corinthians, if you can't approach a person with how much you love them and how much God loves them and how much you're thankful for them, how much joy they bring to your life, if you can't do that, you ought not admonish them. Because it won't be received and my fear is it will be sinfully speaking the truth because it won't be in love. But it's a grace for us to warn one another. It's a grace for us to approach our real family and then our friends and to say, man, this is, this is going against God's Word. This is going against what God wants for you. Not my opinion, but what the Word says. And it's a grace for us to warn the world. It's a grace for us to stand in the truth of God's Word because you're warning them about the death and destruction that sin brings. It's a grace for us to stand for what is right, to restore the truth about sexuality in God's context. And it doesn't mean it's easy to warn the world, but it does mean it is essential that we do so. It's loving that we do so. But I think it is fair for us to go, but why would God be so angry an avenger for this. 
If you have your Bibles, turn to the left to the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's right after Acts, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Why is God such an avenger in this particular area of our life? Well, it's not just because it is so destructive. It is because it is so destructive to something that is not our own. And this could apply to all areas of life, but I think it especially applies here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 enlightens us to what that means, beginning in verse 18. Again, speaking to a different church about the same thing, as if it's a problem everywhere. Flee from sexual immorality. Don't just walk away from it. Flee from it. Run from it. Every other sin. It's a bold statement. A person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It hurts more deeply. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? So it's spiritual. It's not just physical. And then he says, you are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We aim to have a pleasing life because we know we have a purchased life. We aim to have a pleasing life because this life has been bought by the blood of the Son of God, and I no longer own it. I cannot do with it what I want. I must do what He wants, and that's for His glory and for my joy. It's not mine. It's His. As one purchased, we aim to live a pleasing life, first in response to an incredible love. That knowing all of our brokenness, knowing all our ugliness, He died for us. He sees to the bottom of the darkness that we don't let anyone else see. And He says, I'm going to love you. But second, and we have to be convinced of this, it's not just our response to the kind of love we see on the cross. It's because we know that in glorifying God through obedience, we are being restored to who God made us to be. And that is where joy is found. It's the pursuit of joy. It's not just abstaining from bad stuff. It's being captivated by glory. I'd like to end our time with a quote from Jerry Bridges. He uh, passed away last year, I believe. I think he was in his 80s. Fantastic writer. And he wrote a simple book that has sold thousands and thousands of copies called The Pursuit of Holiness. It's very small. You should read it if you haven't. Packs a punch in the most wonderful way. But here's what he wrote about joy in connection with our obedience. He said, the Christian living in disobedience also lives devoid 
of joy and hope. But when he begins to understand that Christ has delivered him from the reign of sin, when he begins to see that he is united to Him who has all power and authority, and that it is possible to walk in obedience, he begins to have hope. And as he hopes in Christ, he begins to have joy. And in the strength of his joy, he begins to overcome the sins that have so easily entangled him, and he then finds that the joy of a holy walk is infinitely more satisfying than the fleeting pleasures of sin. He then finds that the joy of a holy walk is infinitely more satisfying than the fleeting pleasures of sin. But to experience this joy, we must make some choices. We must choose to forsake sin, not only because it is defeating us, but because it grieves the heart of God. The fighting against the brokenness of this world and the fight to please God, if you will, is actually the fight for joy. It's the fight to find pleasure in what God says is truly pleasing. My prayer is that we will believe that. And that is a grace for me to tell you that And it's a grace for God to offer that, to say, if you will live according to my ways, as Jesus said, I tell you these commands so that your joy might be full. My prayer is that you will see and find that joy in Christ in His ways. Let us pray together.